God, we gather today hopeful. Hopeful that the world as we know it is not the way that it will always be. For we have seen the last few weeks some atrocities that can't be unseen. And our hearts are aching and we're afraid. We don't always know what's going on in the world or how to make sense of it. We don't always know how evil works and whether it can be overcome. Through this time, God, we pray for your wisdom and insight and for our attention to be focused, for all distractions to be set aside, so that in this moment, this sacred moment, we will grow deeper and further toward the image with which you created us, your image. God, we pray that all the distortion that has reformed and contorted that image into something else, that it can be wiped away by your grace and once again will be restored to be the people you created us to be. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning again. It's great, great to see all of you. Thank you for being here on a cold uh, day, on a holiday kind of weekend. I hope you've got big plans uh, this week for Thanksgiving. Um, I'll be uh, at the happiest place on earth uh, this week, uh, Disney World, with my family. So y'all, uh, y'all pray for me because the happiest place on earth isn't always. Some of you might know that if you've gone there with small children. So... Uh, I invite your prayers. We are, if you're new here, we are in the middle of a sermon series. It's actually week two of a six-week sermon series called Light in the Darkness. Um, We're talking about cosmic forces of good and evil. Uh, We're talking about God and Satan. We're talking about light and darkness. And uh, and so this will take us through the Christmas season. Uh, Hopefully, you remember last week, those of you that were here, that I left you with a question. I want to know whether you are a materialist or a mystic. And those are the choices. This is pretty much a binary question. And because we have two uh, competing worldviews in our culture, uh, you're going to fit into one or the other. And most of us who are in church would say, well, of course, we're mystics because we believe in a spiritual God. We're here to worship that spiritual God. And so, yeah, I would fall on the mystical side. And I congratulate you for that. And that's great. And I don't mean to sound judgmental at all. But my contention is that we are so deeply immersed in a deeply materialistic culture that we're materialists without even knowing it. You might not have woken up one day and said, I think I'll be a materialist and only care about the things I can see, touch, buy, and acquire. Um, but I'm saying that 95% of us probably fit more in the materialistic side than on the mystical side of the argument. Materialists will say that all that really matters is that which can be seen, touched, bought, or lab tested. Hardcore materialism, true materialism would say not only does that is matter all that matters, but matter is all that's real. Matter is all that exists, and everything else people have made up other than matter is just make-believe. It's superstition. We humans should grow beyond that. That's really at the heart of the materialistic worldview. Um, And my hunch is that most of us fit into that camp. Again, I don't say that in a judgmental way. I'm just saying if you were to honestly audit the way you spend your time, your money, and your energy, my guess would be that almost all of it goes toward things that can be seen, touched, bought, and lab-tested, things that you can touch and feel. 
rather than investing in spiritual realities. So most of us do fall into that materialistic side of the worldview. Clearly, I have an agenda with this series, and that is to make some converts from materialism into mysticism. All I want you to see is the logical end of the line of thought within materialism. Because the, I think the norm now is more and more to think that if you're educated and if you're smart, then you can only be a materialist. Because it's really just backwater hillbilly types and people that have nothing else to hope in that believe in that superstitious stuff anymore. That's the stuff you'll hear in higher education. Kids, if you're going off to college soon, you'll hear that at college. And some of you will hear it in popular culture. I want us to see that there is actually a highly problematic logic behind the materialistic worldview that we don't think about if we're just skimming along the surface. And so if you are a materialist, if you audited your time, energy, and money and how it's spent, and you find yourself to be a materialist, I just want to walk you through what it is materialism really leads toward. The materialist believes that 4.5 billion years ago, for no good reason and with no good purpose and with no intelligence behind it and no creative intentionality behind it, planet Earth appeared 4.5 billion years ago out of nowhere for no good reason. A billion years after that, after spinning alone in the galaxy, planet Earth became home to a single-cell organism that somehow found its way to Earth riding like a rodeo cowboy on an asteroid through space, and it survived flaming entry into our atmosphere until it landed at the bottom of the ocean for no good reason and with no purpose or intentionality behind it. That single-cell organism somehow found a cozy home on Earth. Again, there was no purpose behind this. Earth just happened to be the perfect environment in which that single-cell organism could thrive with no reason or meaning at all and no deeper truth or, or, or you know, higher understanding here, this single-cell organism decided to thrive. There's no reason why life should have a will to flourish if you're a materialist, but it does. It just does. And so 3.5 billion years ago, Single-cell organisms became multi-cell organisms because even back then, being single felt like a curse. And so they became multi-cell organisms. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. And so the, 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 the idea is that life was never satisfied with the way it is, that it always wants to grow and progress and evolve, you might say. There's no reason behind it. It just happened to be so if you're a materialist. And so multi-cell organisms became shellfish, and jellyfish, and jellyfish, and shellfish became sharks and larger fish of the sea. Until one day, for no real good reason or purpose, some of the fish decided it might be cooler to live on land part of the time. And so they grew legs and started walking around on land. And this is not a critique of evolution. If you were here during my science and faith series, you know how I feel about evolution. I'm okay with that if, if that's where you're at. You can be a Christian and believe in evolution. I'm just saying if you're a materialist, this is what you're reduced to if you follow it through to its logical end. Some fish decided to grow legs and walked on land. And then after a while, some of those land fish decided not to go back into the water because his ex-wife was down there. He didn't want to see her again. And, you know, the land fish were younger, and they had grown fully developed lungs instead of gills and feathers instead of fins. They were way prettier. So I'll just stay on land. And so they stayed on land for a while, content for a while. But life is not content the way it is. It grows. It evolves. But for no good reason, 
Back then, billions of years ago, every living thing that wanted to procreate laid eggs. Only problem with laying eggs is that the eggs are there for weeks or months, and predators come and take them away. And so one day, if you're a materialist, one day you think, a man said to his wife, how would you feel about growing the egg inside your belly to keep it safe for, I don't know, nine, ten months? And she looked at him like he was crazy, and she said, I'll do that when you figure out how to walk on two legs instead of four. And a few months later, he's strutting around the house, thumping his chest with his new feet hands, and she's on the couch, pregnant and rolling her eyes. If you're a materialist, this is all you have. Animals grew smarter for no good reason. They grew self-aware at one point. At one point, one ape said to the other apes, you guys ever think about how we got here or why? And the other apes looked at him like he was crazy, and so he left with his girlfriend, and they became the first humans. And that's where we sit in the midst of creation, or if you're a materialist, in the midst of the universe. That's where we sit. And for no good reason, we exist. And so we're here. There's no purpose here. There's no higher law, moral code, deeper meaning, absolute truth. None of it's real. And so let's enjoy this while we've got it. Let's live life to the fullest. Fulfill every indulgence that you can because your time on earth is short. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's the motto of materialism when you see it through to its end. What I want us to do is to consider the alternative. Most of us, if we're honest, do fit into that camp of materialism. I want to make some converts with this series. Not to Christianity necessarily. I want to make some converts to mysticism. Because the mystic looks at the origins of the universe. The mystic looks at the history of the earth and the trajectory of life. And the mystic says something more is going on here. There's something more to this life. There is an intelligence. There is a design. There seems to be a trajectory and a purpose and a destiny And there seems to be evil working against the good, darkness trying to overshadow the light. There seems to be something more at stake with creation, the mystic would say. The materialist says, no, what you see is what you get. And I want you to ask yourself, which are you? Not which do you hope to be, which do you hope God thinks you are, which are you really? As you audit your life and the way you spend your time, money, and your energy, which are you, the materialist or the mystic? So with this series, we're going to be talking about God and Satan. I do believe most people here believe in God, but materialists can believe in God in as much as God becomes another outlet for you to get the stuff that you want. God exists in order to give you more material stuff. But a true belief in the God of the Bible goes deeper than that, and there's more at stake than that. So we're going to be talking about God. We're going to be talking about the enemy. I believe God exists, and I believe God has a plan for your life, and that plan is for you to live, for you to know love, for you to be free. But I also believe that there is an enemy at work in your life, and I feel like as a pastor, as your pastor who loves you, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you, and if I, if I let some of you high school students go off to college without knowledge of your enemy, who also has a plan for your life and wants to bring you to ruin, wants death for you and hate for you and wants you to be afraid. And so this is what we're talking about. And I recognize that churches have made one of two mistakes with some regularity when we talk about, especially when we talk about spiritual things, but when we talk about Satan. 
Some of you have come up to me, you said, I've been in Methodist church all my life, or I've been in mainline denominational churches my whole life, and I've never heard a sermon about Satan before until now. That's a shame. Others of you might have grown up in or around churches that couldn't stop talking about Satan. And every single bad thing that happened in life was because of Satan. You fall down the stairs and break your ankle. It's not because you were texting while walking. Satan tripped you. Every bad thing is his fault. I don't want to make either of those mistakes. I don't want to act like there's no enemy. I also don't want to give the enemy more credit or let you off the hook for the bad decisions you make that have nothing to do with, with the devil. And I'm included in that, right? We should have some accountability. But I do want us to know about this evil force in the universe that works against us to bring us to ruin. First Peter says, and this was Peter who was as close to Jesus as anyone, that the enemy prowls around like a lion, waiting, watching, looking for someone to devour. He's serious about you. Probably more serious than you or I have been about him. And in, uh, in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, Give no opportunity to the devil. Give your enemy no foothold. In other words, don't give the enemy a foot in the door of your heart. Because if you do, all he needs is a tiny sliver, a tiny opening, a little opportunity to get into your soul, into your life. And getting him out of your life is much harder than keeping him out. Does that make sense? This is a biblical view of how the devil works in our lives. Give him no opportunity. Go back with me to 1960. There was a young man living an all-American life in 1960. Uh, he came from a good religious family, a family of immigrants, and he was living uh, an amazing uh, sort of American dream life. He married his high school sweetheart. He had dreams of starting his own business. He worked his way through college. One year, he worked as a lifeguard for a whole year. And he saved in 1960, this was actually 1959, he saved $5,000 working as a lifeguard for one year, living well below his means to achieve this dream that he had had his whole life. And in 1960, he founded his business. Very small beginnings, but the business began to grow because he developed a reputation for being honest, for being a man of integrity, for being someone who gave personal attention to every single client who walked into his office. And soon, word began to spread. And over the time period of a few decades, he, gave, he got a, and earned a really good reputation in the industry for being a man of super high integrity, a man who does good work, and his business grew exponentially. Uh, he was, by any measure, a success story. He uh, was so successful, he was able to offer his two sons jobs with him. He had dreams of handing the family business off to his two sons. They were his only children, and the business was so successful that he looked forward to handing it off to them. All his dreams were coming true. But somewhere along the way, something went horribly, terribly, awfully wrong. And in 2008, in December of 2008, this man admitted to his two sons that part of their family business had been operating as an elaborate scheme, a Ponzi scheme, he told them. When they demanded to know how much had been taken, how much had been stolen, he told them that he had stolen $50 billion from people over the years. And in the next day, in December of 2008, he was arrested 
this man. The authorities came and took Bernie Madoff away. And as it turns out, their investigation revealed that he hadn't stolen $50 billion from people. He had stolen $65 billion from people. The list of his clients was shocking. The list of clients that he had stolen from included names like Sandy Koufax and Kevin Bacon and Steven Spielberg and Jaja Gabor. He stole $9 million from school teachers in Korea through their pension funds being invested in him. He stole $15 million from a foundation supporting Holocaust survivors and their family. What kind of a man does that? What kind of a man steals $15 million from people that survived the Holocaust? But that was the man that Bernie Madoff had become. In 2009, at least six charities had to close their doors because all they had was invested in Madoff. Charities doing good work in the world had to stop what they were doing because of this man's cycle of sin. And maybe the most tragic victims in the story, maybe, were Madoff's own two sons who were so wrecked by their father's decisions, by their father's sin and actions, and the consequences they were, they, they, they were carrying, the burdens they were carrying after their father was taken off to jail, that two years to the day after their father's arrest, one of his sons hanged himself in front of his toddler. And the other son had a relapse of lymphoma, and he said it was at least in part due to the stress and shame his father had caused him, and he later died. And now this man, whose life was once so full of promise, this man who one year worked like a dog as a lifeguard, saving every bit of money he could, probably eating ramen noodles and hot dogs and whatever he could, just to save as much money as he could to fulfill this dream that he had of having a good business he could hand off to his sons. Now he sits rotting in prison for 150 years, they sentenced him, knowing that he had a hand in his own son's deaths. And everyone wants to know, how does something like this happen? How does someone like Bernie Madoff become so vile, so wicked, and so evil? Who are these people that do things like this? Was there a moment early on in his career where Bernie sat in a board meeting, you know, like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons, and just like did his fingers and the evil like laugh and everything? We want to think he was sinister that way. We'd love to think it was a scheme all along because we want to... We want to believe Bernie is not like us, and we are not like him. We want to think he had that plan from the beginning. I'm telling you now, that's not how this happened. No one really has documented evidence about how this scheme unfolded. There's no evidence about when it began or how it began. I know enough about how sin works in people's lives. I've seen it ruin enough lives to know how this works. It didn't work with an elaborate plan from a board meeting. This is how it probably happened. This is how it probably began. I'm guessing that one day, Bernie was having a, a, a tough time. I'm guessing that one day, the company was struggling. Maybe his rival across town was just killing it and threatening a hostile takeover of his business or at least rubbing his face in his success. I'm guessing Bernie Madoff might have missed several uh, uh, days off. I'm guessing it had been a long time since his day off. I'm guessing he was exhausted and burned out. 
because that's when sin is at its best. I'm guessing that Bernie's wife was probably mad at him and they've been fighting and hadn't connected as husband and wife in a long time. I'm guessing that it had been months since Bernie had gone to synagogue and connected and reconnected with God again. I'm guessing that it was at that precise moment because this is how your enemy works. At that precise moment when Bernie's guard was down, when he's exhausted, burned out, feels like a disappointment, when he looks in the mirror and sees a fat old man and wonders what happened to the man of his youth, I'm guessing that it was at that moment of despair that his most important client called and wanted to know about her portfolio. That I'm guessing in that moment, on that day, Bernie didn't have the stomach to tell her she was 3% down. And I'm guessing in that moment, just to get through the day, just to hold on to her business for a little while longer so that, so that Bernie's company doesn't go under, I'm guessing he made a small little innocuous, innocuous decision to turn that negative three into a positive three. You're up 3%. Tiny little thing. But I'm guessing it made her happy. And I bet the feeling of making her happy was like that first cup of coffee in the morning. It was a shot in the arm. It was adrenaline. And Bernie wanted more of that. And you know as well as I do that the first lie going over well makes the second lie a little bit easier. And the third lie might as well be second nature to you. Before long, you're telling lies as if they're truths. You don't even know what's true anymore. I'm guessing something similar happened to Bernie Madoff. And before long, the stakes were higher. The, the, the scheme was more elaborate. And Bernie himself was lost to the point that he looks in the mirror and sees someone he no longer recognizes, a destroyer of lives, a man who once saved $5,000 just to start his own business has now brought down countless innocent victims. And it all began not with some elaborate scheme, not with a really evil guy. It all began with one moment of weakness, one opportunity that led to everything else. You see, here's where we get it wrong. We think evil works overtly. We think there are good guys and bad guys. We think the bad guys are not like us, and we are not like them. We think the lines are clearly drawn between us and them. And when we can compartmentalize people like Bernie Madoff or people like the terrorists on the news or the really bad guys, and we can put them in a box and say we're not like them, it lets us feel a little bit better about ourselves. And we forget that we all are criminals. Has anyone here never broken the law? How many of you broke the law on your way to church this morning? Come on, be honest. You ran the red lights. You cruised through a stop sign. You broke God's law by cursing somebody on the roads. You know you're a criminal. I'm a criminal. There are no clear lines between the good guys and bad guys. We're all Sinners, we all have a little bit of Bernie Madoff within us. That's what the Bible says. Lest we forget. Second Samuel chapter 11. If you want to turn your Bibles with me, uh, you can go there and read the story. 
Uh, it's also on your study guides. Hopefully, I forgot to mention those earlier, but hopefully you saw those. That's a great way of kind of uh, keeping up with where we are in the sermon. Those study guides are for your use in your small groups or in your personal devotional time. 2 Samuel 11 uh, is early on in the Old Testament, after the books of Moses, before you get to the prophets and the Psalms and all that. It tells the, one of the most controversial stories in the whole Bible. It tells the story of King David and Bathsheba. And if you've seen the movies or you remember this from VBS, you probably got the wrong idea about the story of King David and Bathsheba because typically when we've retold this story, we've put a lot of the blame on Bathsheba as if she was some kind of a sultry temptress and David was powerless in looking at her body and all that stuff. And that's not at all really how the story goes. We're not really sure if Bathsheba was a willing participant and what happened. But here's the story. For those of you who may not be familiar, David, the Bible says, was a man after God's own heart. What that means is that David loved God so completely. David comes from obscurity. He comes from nowhere. He is the youngest and shortest of 12 brothers. He is a shepherd in the field watching flocks of sheep every day. And God says, this one is going to be the new king. And God blesses David in ways you cannot imagine. If David lived in Houston, he would have lived in River Oaks, the nicest part of Israel, and he would have come from nowhere to claim a place in River Oaks, Houston. 77027 would be David's zip code if he lived in Houston because he was so blessed, so overwhelmed by God's blessings and God's mercy. God gave David the strength to take down the giant Goliath. God gave David the, the, the joy to dance in his underwear in front of all the people because God made David so happy. That's a story from the, the, the Bible. And so David was in love with God. And God gave David everything he could ever want. He had eight beautiful wives, the Bible says. It was a different time. You can't do that anymore. But this was a good thing back then. It was good to be king. David had it all. He's a great warrior, a great leader of men, and the economy was flourishing. People loved him. But it's, this is what happens. After fighting to get to the top and where he was, David gets comfortable and complacent. Second Samuel chapter 11 begins this way. It says, it was the springtime when kings go off to war, but David sent his army to war and he stayed home. And in this line tells us a lot. If you're not looking for it, you'll miss it. The writer of this story is telling us that David is not doing what a king should do. God gives David the privilege of being a king, and David does not fulfill his purpose and his function that God has given him. Instead, David gets a little lazy. David stays home. Remember what your grandma used to say about idle hands? Idle hands are the what? The devil's playground. That's right. My grandma used to tell me that. And that's what happens with David. His idle hands give the devil an opportunity to enter into his life and put distance between him and God. David's walking alone when he should have been at war with his troops, with his men, fighting for the good of Israel. He's walking alone on the rooftop of his palace. I always picture him kind of scoping the city with his, you know, the thing they had and whatever that is. And he spots a woman taking a bath at her house. And she's naked and she's beautiful. And instead of being a man of honor, a man of integrity and putting down the scope and walking away and saying, I have eight wives. That's not one of them. That's someone else's wife. That one's not for me. I'm happy at home where God has given me everything I could ever want and more instead of walking away. 
David has a notion. And he asks his advisors, who is this woman? And the advisors say, well, that's Bathsheba. She's Uriah's wife. Uriah, your soldier, was at war fighting on your behalf. And instead of being a man of honor and thinking, what kind of a man would take advantage of his own soldier's wife while he's off at war fighting for me? David thinks, this is my chance. Husband's not home. No one will know. So you see how one thing leads to another? David says, bring her to me. He has his way with her. And he sends her home. For two months, everything's great. It was awesome. And David had a good time with her, we suppose. Two months later, she sends him a message. Two words. I'm pregnant. And David knows he's in trouble. But instead of cutting the cycle of sin off right there like he should, like any person of integrity would, he lets one lie lead to another. He begins to devise a scheme. How am I going to cover my tracks here? How am I going to get out of this? Have you been there? And he sends for Uriah to come home from the war. He says, I want Uriah the Hittite to come home and give me an update on the battlefront. From the battlefront. And so Uriah comes and tells David how it's going. David pretends to be interested. He doesn't really care what Uriah has to say about the war. When Uriah is done, David says, well done, my, my soldier. Go home and enjoy your wife. Uriah leaves David's presence, and David thinks his problems are over. But Uriah is a man of integrity. Uriah is a man of honor. He refuses to go home. He sleeps on the front steps of the palace. And in the morning, David's advisors wake him up and say, King David, Uriah never went home last night. And David goes out to Uriah and says, why didn't you go home and sleep with your wife? And Uriah says, my brothers are spilling their blood on the front line for this nation that I love. How could I enjoy the comforts of home when my brothers are off at war? And instead of cutting that cycle off right there and confessing, David says, you know what, Uriah, I like you. Would you stay another night with me? And I'll send you back to war tomorrow. David goes to his advisors and say, prepare the best meal you can and break out the best wine that we have in the kingdom. David's plan is to get Uriah drunk because then he'll go home and be with his wife. Only problem is David gets Uriah a little too drunk and if you've been there. And he <laughs> can't make it home that night. Uriah again falls asleep on the front steps of the palace. This time not because of honor or integrity, I think. This time because he couldn't make it. And David wakes up again the next morning. And Uriah is there on the palace steps. And he goes out to Uriah and says, why are you still here? David devises another scheme. One lie leads to another. By now, it's second nature to David. And he sends Uriah back to the front lines of battle with a note for his commanding officer. He says, don't read this. Just give it to your commander. Uriah, a man of honor, does that. Hands the note to his commander. The note reads, send this soldier to the front lines in the most fierce fighting so that he will surely be killed. You see how this happens in David's life? Uriah is killed in battle, essentially making King David the one who God chose out of the 12 brothers to be the next king of Israel, the shepherd boy, the guy that slayed 
the giant with a slingshot, the guy that danced in his underwear, the man after God's own heart, has now been reduced to a liar, an adulterer, maybe a rapist, definitely a murderer. How does this happen? Do you think when David chose to stay home from war instead of fulfilling his purpose that God had given him, do you think in the back of his mind he thought, I can't wait for this decision to lead to my ruin? I can't wait to stay home so I can make all these bad decisions and become a liar and a murderer. Do you think that's what was on his mind? No. David gave the enemy one little opportunity. David gives Satan one little opening, and the rest is history. Now, that wasn't David's plan. What I want you to see is it was his enemy's plan. See, we always say that God has a plan for your life, and I believe that to be true. But we're missing it if that's all we say. If all you hear a preacher say is God has a plan for your life, and it is good, and it is prosperous, and it is great, and then he stops, you're missing it. Because God's not the only one who has a plan for your life. Your enemy, your adversary, the snake, the serpent, the dragon, whatever the Bible calls him, also has a plan for your life. And it is to bring you to utter ruin. He hates you as almost as much as God loves you. And if you're a mystic, you understand there is more going on than what you can see every day. And your everyday choices, they matter. No one ever takes that first drink and goes, I can't wait till I become a raging alcoholic. No one ever uh, looks at the wrong websites online and goes, I just can't wait until my wife discovers my browser history and her heart is broken in a million pieces. No one ever gets a little flirty with a coworker thinking, I just can't wait for this to become a, a torrid affair that tears my life apart. No one ever skips a few days of reading the Bible or praying or a few weeks of going to church thinking, I'm looking forward to how Satan's going to take advantage of this opportunity. No one thinks that way. But that is exactly how it works. Your enemy has a plan for your life. God's plan for you is to reshape you into the, your, your initial image, the image of God. The Holy Spirit works on you to shape you into that image. But there is an evil force at well, as well that wants to warp you. It wants to contort your life and twist your decision-making to make you into something you will not recognize one day. One of my favorite Christian authors, N.T. Wright, talks about how this works, how this process works on regular people. This is from the book Surprised by Hope. This is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but y'all stay with me. This is so, so important to understand how evil works in your lives. It's also on your study guides. N.T. Wright says, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, in other words, when we worship or bow to material things, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. 
Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, practices, past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and those whose lives they touch. What this means is that if all you pay attention to and worship and bow down to is the material things, you yourself will become a material thing, soulless, empty, and temporary, because you become like that which you worship. And this is what is at stake. It's not just this life. It's what's to come in the next life. And here's what N.T. Wright says about what happens to those who repeatedly choose to bow to material things. He says, my suggestion is that it's possible for human beings so to continue down this road, so to refuse all whisperings of good news, all glimmers of the true light, all promptings to turn and go to the other way, all signposts to the love of God that after death they become at last by their own effective choice, beings that once were human, but now are not, creatures that have ceased to bear the divine image at all. This is what's at stake. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We believe this to be true, but we also have to believe the opposite to be true. That when your heart is corrupted, those who are corrupted by cycles of sin will not or cannot see God. There is more at stake and more going on in your life than what you know and your daily decisions matter. Here's the good news about David's life. After his life fell apart and his whole family fell apart under the weight of the consequences of his actions, his sons grew to hate him and do horrible things. It was an awful situation he found himself in. But David, in Psalm 51, David prays this prayer immediately after he realizes what he's done. And he begins with confession. He says, forgive me, God. Forgive my sins. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The good news about David's life and David's story is that even though he did awful things, things that if you read about in a newspaper, you'd go, there's a warm place in hell for that man. God refused to give up on him. God refused to give him over to this enemy whose plan David had gone along with. God chose to restore David and renew his heart again. And the good news is that David's story is your story. David's story is mine. We know that God chose to restore David into good standing with the family of God because the first gospel, Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1 begins this way. It's the introduction of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, a record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David. This is the same David who hatched all those evil schemes. This is the same David who became a murderer and a liar and a thief. This David was restored to the family of God in Jesus. You see, Jesus came to restore sinners to the family again. I hope you remember that as you go have a family dinner at Thanksgiving with your own group of sinners this week. Jesus came for the least desirable person at your Thanksgiving dinner table. 
Now that might be you in the eyes of others. Jesus came to restore those who the world calls bad, sinful, evil, and beyond the scope of grace or forgiveness. Jesus came to restore them, not only to the family, but to the table. Jesus restores David to the heavenly banquet. When we go there one day, by the grace of God, we'll see him there. We'll go, David, what happened, man? How did you do all that stuff? And he'll tell us the whole story as we break bread with him at the heavenly banquet. You see, here's the the good news is that there are people here today who have made such egregious decisions and broken so many hearts. And there are people hurting, people you love that are hurting and suffering under the weight of your sin. And deep down you think, I'll go to church, but that's really not for me. I'll go to church, it's the right thing to do, but God's forgiveness is really not for me because what I did disqualifies me. What I did counts me out. And some of you love someone who feels that way, that what they did counts them out. There is no one who's ever lived that's been counted out of the banquet that Jesus came to prepare. There is no one beyond the scope of this invitation. There is nothing you can ever do to make God love you any less than God has always loved you. And God will never stop until you understand that. Your name is on the invitation to this meal. That's why we celebrate communion every week. So that we would never forget that we are all invited that we are all invited back to the family. My prayer, my hope, the hope of my heart is that today would be the day you say, yes, okay, I will come home. If you've wandered, if you've been out and about finding your own way, let today be the day. Let today be your homecoming. Let today be the day you say yes to this invitation. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We don't know why you love us the way you do, but we are grateful and we don't take it for granted. Creating us clean hearts, oh God, and renew right spirits within us so that we will become your image again so that all the distortion and All the ways that we've messed up will be wiped clean. Thank you for welcoming us to this table. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.